So we're continuing in this uh, series of sermons that we've been um, going through for the last several weeks. And uh, the goal is shaped by the story, uh, the account of Jesus' transfiguration, where he, with Matt, uh, Peter, James, and John, go up the mountain. Uh, he's transfigured before them. His clothes radiate light. Uh, his face shines with light brighter than the sun. And they experience the glory of Jesus there in this theophany. Uh, the voice of the, sp- the Father speaks. This is my Son. Listen to Him. The presence of the Spirit is denoted by the, the, the glorious cloud that descends upon them. Uh, Peter, of course, wants to stay, but Jesus then leads them back down the mountain, setting His face towards Jerusalem. The invitation is for their eyes, for their sight to be transformed. For as they saw Jesus very briefly atop the mountain, uh, He is in His person always. Uh, this glorious and this magnificent. Uh, The hope is that we too, as we try to learn to see more clearly, can catch longer glimpses of the light of Christ filling our lives, the world around us, the kingdom of heaven breaking in upon us, um, the glory of Jesus in the world. Um, As we said in the prayer that we just prayed, the Holy Spirit is everywhere and fills all things. There is nowhere that you can go, or that you have ever been where the Holy Spirit wasn't present. And the hope for us is that we can learn to see more fully God's activity in the world around us and participate in it. Um, We've been attempting to enter into that transformed vision in a few particular ways. We're, We're hopefully acquiring some tools and gaining some practices and habits that will shape our greater perception. Uh, We talked about holiness in the beginning, holy places, holy things, holy people. Uh, We tracked the story of Exodus, the accounts of how God instructed the people to build the tabernacle, the holy place, and fill it with particular objects, holy things. And then he um, robed the priests and set them apart in a particular way to be holy people, uh, such that all of Israel could become a holy priesthood. I've been encouraging you to go to a particular place in your home, a holy place for you with uh, perhaps a treasured Bible or note from uh, one of the people that have loved you from your life and led you closer to the Lord. Uh, A holy object that might open your eyes a bit more fully to God's presence around you. Um, We've hoped as well that we could take on some new practices, new habits together that could, again, continue to open up our perception of Christ's presence in the world. Do you remember the first one? The first habit, this new ritual that we are uh, hoping to experience together? It's making the sign of the cross, yes, which typically we associate with the Roman Catholic Church uh, or the Eastern Orthodox Church or maybe Anglicans or Lutherans or Episcopalians and so on. But um, it has a very long history in the church. It's not a sinful practice or a bad one. In fact, it is imbued and full of meaning. And so um, that is one of the ways that we have sought to open up ourselves uh, through the habits that we take on to what God's doing in the world. You remember that quote I gave you from Annie Dillard, the way we spend our days is the way we spend our life. Talked about that last week. And so we've invited the practice of making the sign of the cross in the morning and in the evening, just in the same way that God commanded Israel to offer the morning sacrifice 
from the tabernacle in the morning to offer the same evening sacrifice at the close of day, and how these practices were then embodied in the lives of particular people. They couldn't all eventually go to the temple every day to Jerusalem. No, they said in the morning, well, let me raise my hands as the morning sacrifice. In the evening, I said, Lord, hear my prayers, the evening sacrifice. So what was going on in Jerusalem, that spiritual place, is then what the people began to embody in their own personal lives. So we're trying in the same way. You know, we have our Sunday gathering, but we're also hoping to take on these practices personally and in our homes so that we can share in the life of Christ together. So let's walk through it really quickly. Sign of the cross. We're hoping to practice morning and evening. Three fingers together, thumb, pointer, and middle finger. Three, symbolizing the Trinity. Your ring finger and your pinky extend down to your palm and touch your palm, signifying that Christ has come down from heaven, but also that he is fully God and fully man. This, too, indicates the, the dual nature of Christ, that he is both human and divine. If you turn your hand sideways, you can see through this opening the two fingers signifying Christ, one person and two natures. And so this opening can be understood as his incarnation, as perhaps the womb of Mary, wherein Christ became man among us. Of course, Christ is man. Mary is there. Humanity is man and woman are together here, joined to the life of God by way of Jesus, who joins us to the life of the Trinity. So a lot is going on just by doing your hands like this, right? <laughs> Then we make the sign of the cross. You can take from your forehead to your stomach, to the right shoulder, and to the left. Jesus went to a cross for us. This act is saying, Lord Jesus, I want to share in the power of your cross in my own life. It's a sign that you want to become his disciple, that you want to follow his command to take up your cross and follow after him. Remembering that the sign of the cross now for the Christian isn't simply a sign or an instrument of torture and death. It is the sign of Christ's victory. We're saying we want to be joined to the victory of Jesus over anything that might come against us. Of course, this victory is not something that you can work your way towards on your own. Or struggle hard enough to do these habits and practices and then you do it on, by yourself. No, at every stage... We're joining ourselves to the whole ministry of Jesus because we can say in each location here, they symbolically point us to some aspect of Christ's life. So Jesus, of course, was incarnate, but before his incarnation, Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. He is the Word, the eternal Word, through whom all things were made. So we could imagine Christ, the Word uh, in heaven with God the Father, the eternal Son, we are here, sort of like heaven. But Jesus, of course, comes down to earth. This is kind of like the womb right, of Mary. We can think of his earthly life, his ministry, his teaching, his healing, his proclaiming the kingdom of God until eventually he goes to the cross. Here's the death. Here's also, just like the virgin womb, the tomb, where Jesus entered even into death on our behalf. That was not the end of the story. The one who came down from heaven was also raised up in the resurrection and now is ascended to sit at the right hand. That's why we come to the right side. The right hand of God the Father in power, where he is Lord of heaven and earth until that time when he should come again. This is his coming again. 
So when you make the sign of the cross, it's the victory of Jesus. It's the life to which you have been now joined in your baptism. But it's also a remembrance of all that Christ has done for you. He's come down. He's died. He's been raised. He promises to come again. And when you make the sign of the cross, you offer him your mind, your soul, your strength, and your heart. So that you can fulfill that great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A lot's going on in that one habit. It's a, it's a physical form of prayer. Just like bowing your head when we pray or closing your eyes so that you can surrender to Christ's lordship. So that you can close off um, distractions and gain greater spiritual sight. This is a physical form of prayer that you can take on perhaps in the morning and in the evening. Again, with the goal of learning to see. How you spend your days is how you spend your life. Perhaps at the end of your life, if you make the sign of the cross each day, you could legitimately say at the end of it, how have I lived my life? I've offered myself to Jesus, to the Lord, as a sacrifice, as a place of hospitality and communion with Him. This morning... I want, to, I want to give you another habit, another ritual, another thing that you could do, again, in the morning and the evening in, ch- in conjunction with making the sign of the cross. All with the goal of opening ourselves up to the ministry of Christ in our lives. Um, it is, uh, in a word or a phrase, uh, praying the Jesus prayer. I've mentioned that a time or two before. Uh, particularly at our prayer vigils. In fact, if you come to the prayer vigil, which is happening a couple Fridays from now, um, we'll have an opportunity to pray the Jesus prayer together, as we have before. Uh, But I want to walk us through this prayer, um, because it is a prayer which, again, I'm studying the Eastern Church in the East, they make the sign of the cross, and then the central kind of prayer of their spiritual life is this prayer, which I'm going to teach you today. Um, It is a prayer which is prayed nearly continuously in in the church. Um, People will actually pray it while they're in worship. They'll pray it in private devotions. They'll pray it together. Uh, It's not hard to memorize at all. You'll have it memorized by the time you leave today. Um, I I guarantee you. Uh, But uh, I want to show you the scriptural roots of this prayer. Um, Just as making the sign of the cross goes back far beyond... The year 200, it's an ancient practice. Um, So also this prayer goes back centuries and centuries. Um, So here it is, um, the two scriptures which are going to clue us in just a little bit to the depth of this prayer. They both come to us from Luke chapter 18. The first of them, verses 9 through 14, uh, is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who come to pray in the temple. One does it pretty well and one does it pretty poorly. The next uh, account, the next story that's going to shape this prayer historically and biblically is also in Luke 18, verses 35 through 43. It's the story of a blind beggar who calls out to Jesus from the side of the road as he makes his way to Jericho. And when he's doing this, um, Jesus hears him, answers his prayer, and brings sight, allows him to see. And the man stands up and follows Jesus on the way to the cross. See how all these things are kind of tying together? So listen carefully and listen well, beginning with Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then continuing in verse 35, As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Two examples of how to pray lifted up by Jesus. One in a parable. Um, We see tax collector, uh, whom everyone disregarded, didn't like took all their money. Typically, they cheated them in the ancient world. Uh, He goes into the temple and prays, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Um, The Pharisee, the religious person, the person who um, gave, in some sense, all of his life to God uh, in his tithing, in his prayers, in his fasting. He did all of these things. He kept all of these habits. So here's maybe a word of caution to us as we're taking on some habits, right? He did all these things for God, and he let God know all about it. Look at all these things I've done for you. Thank you so much that I'm not like all these other people beneath me. And the tax collector, who was wealthier than probably anyone else who was in the temple that day, says, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. One exalted himself, and he was humbled. The other humbled himself, and he was exalted and went home justified, which means in right relationship with God. What did he say? Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The other man, the blind beggar, who was beside the road as Jesus made his way near Jericho, was crying out. He heard Jesus was coming. He said, Jesus, son of David, have what on me? Have mercy. There's that word again. There's that cry again. Have mercy on me. People said, be quiet. Don't bother him. He called out all the more. Have mercy on me. Jesus heard He brings him near. He says, what do you desire for me to do for you? He said, let me recover my sight. He said, recover it. 
Your faith has made you well. And he immediately he could see. But then the man rose and followed him. The relationship was just starting. It wasn't over with this story. It was just beginning. And it continued as Jesus made his way towards Jerusalem and to the cross. We have been hoping that Jesus would open our eyes to see. This story is a reminder that we're not going to do that on our own. We're not going to work hard enough or figure out the right pattern or figure out the tricks well enough to say, oh, now I can see God everywhere that I choose to see God. No, in, this, in these two stories, we're reminded that Jesus is the one who has the operative power here. Our task is to ask Jesus for what we desire and then to wait patiently for what Jesus will give in the right time. We want to see. How can we begin to see? We can pray the Jesus prayer, which is drawn from, among other places, these two stories. The Jesus prayer goes like this. You can see how it brings together the two petitions of these two men. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. That's the whole thing. You say it with me? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. One more time. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. That's the prayer. That is called the Jesus Prayer. It's, um, it's prayed as the central prayer um, by most folks in the East and dating back a very long way. Um, it's simple. You know, Jesus says also about prayer, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, but pray like this. He teaches them the Lord's Prayer. But prayer doesn't have to be all these words that we come up with and make up and we talk circles and talk and talk and talk to God. Prayer says don't heap up empty phrases, but say phrases, offer phrases to the Lord, offer yourself to God through your words in very simple ways. Now, as simple as this prayer is, you probably know it now, right? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. It, like making the sign of the cross, is full of meaning. What I'd like to do is show you a few of those meanings inherent to this prayer, show you how full it is of content, but then I also want to give you maybe some opportunities, some examples of how you could pray this prayer in a way that could become a ritual in the very best sense of that word for you, a way that would shape you and mold you over time. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. It's a Trinitarian prayer. You say, well, all I hear is the name Jesus. I don't hear the Father or the Spirit there. (coughs) Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Yes, Jesus is named in this prayer. Jesus whose name means God saves. Jesus who is the incarnate Son of God. Son of God. There it is in the prayer. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the Son of God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. The scriptures tell us that we cannot call Jesus Lord without the gift of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures say you can't call Jesus Lord of your life without the Spirit empowering you to do that. And so when you pray this prayer, you're praying to the Lord Jesus, who is Son of God the Father, and you're doing so in the power of the Holy Spirit. This prayer is just like those three fingers that you bring together. When you pray it, you testify to the truth 
of the Trinitarian God. One God in three persons. You're also acclaiming right, the incarnation. Uh, that Jesus is the Son of the Father. We, we name both His um, uh, humanity and His divinity in this prayer. Jesus is the Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One promised to Israel to come and be the King. But He's also the Son of God, the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, of all things, right? And so we see both His divinity and His humanity in this prayer. It's just like those two fingers that you bend down to touch your palm. Inherent to this prayer is also the fullness of the gospel. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. I gave you the earliest version, kind of, of this Jesus prayer. Most times now it's prayed like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's taking on that designation given by the tax collector in this story. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He, he beat his chest as he said this. Um, we're taking on that designator. It, it reminds us that, yes, we are sinful. That we need the mercy of Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, who comes to us in the power of the Spirit and does give mercy. His mercy is, is uh, seen in His forgiveness of our sins. is seen in His work on the cross. is actually seen in the fullness of His earthly life. Uh, his instruction. His teaching on what it means to live and to be human and be in relationship with God and others. Um, and His instruction on how to live in ways that are good and holy and true. Um, and His ability to open us to the beauty of God in the world. The fullness of Christ's life is here. The gospel is here as we ask Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, to have mercy on me, a sinner. We need God's salvation. So we see these aspects of the prayer. Um, but I also want to tell you a little bit about, and there's more there, but we won't go into all of it. Um, we can see the Trinity. We can see the divinity and humanity of Jesus. We can see the gospel uh, in this prayer. But I also want to show you a little bit of how to pray it. It's one sentence, right? It's, it's a prayer that's prayed repeatedly over time. Um, but the practice goes like this. It's a prayer that's able to be joined to your breathing. You know, one of the things that encountering uh, the church in the East has done for me is it's shown me ways that we basically just think if we think the right things about our faith, that's really the only job we have. Uh, Protestants, largely, we're, we're so reactive against works righteousness that we think we don't have to do any work at all. We don't think we have to do, actually do anything except think the right way. But ultimately, if you trace that out, that means the temptation is to make right thinking the work, the one work that you have to offer to God. This actually isn't about works righteousness at all. It's about praying and using the body that God gave you. Right? God could have just made you a disembodied spirit, but did not. God gave you a body, and we can use that. In particular, your breath. In the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is often spoken of as the Ruach of God in, in Hebrew, which means wind or breath, the Holy Spirit being the breath of God. And when God created Adam and Eve, He breathed into them the breath of His own life. And so when you pray this prayer, you can divide it into two halves. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, to be prayed 
as you breathe in, have mercy on me, or have mercy on me, a sinner, as you breathe out. You'll discover that if you do that over a period of time, that you will have this sense of breathing Christ, taking Christ into you, receiving the gift of the Spirit who testifies to Christ and bears the life of Christ in your own life. You'll, it will, there will be like a, a physical reaction to this in a sense. You'll feel like you're taking in something that is light and pure and gives life to you. And then when you breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner, um, you can think of expelling, of, of, of breathing out all those aspects of who you are that aren't in keeping with what God intends for you. It's a way of getting rid of your sin in a way. And so you will feel this sort of ebb and flow within this prayer of, of drawing in, of seeking to, to unite yourself with Christ, your Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and then getting rid of all those things in you uh, that aren't in keeping with God's will. We have getting rid of your sin, you might say. Asking Christ's mercy. Um, so there's this, this twofold aspect, a breathing in and a breathing out. Um, the second thing I'd like to say about how to pray this prayer is to begin by saying it out loud. To, when you pray it, pray it out loud. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And do that consistently. And then at a particular time, I want you to begin praying, uh, not with your lips, but praying with your mind. Offering the prayer to God, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And thinking that prayer. Um, and the goal would be for this prayer to move from your lips to your mind and then to your heart so that you can begin to pray this prayer at the very center of your being, at the core of who you are. Um, I'll tell you about things that I don't really know from experience, but throughout the very long centuries of the church, those who have prayed this prayer consistently have found it to be a direct response to Christ or the, the, the command in the scriptures that Paul gives to Timothy uh, to pray without ceasing. You, have you ever encountered that directive? To pray without ceasing, to never stop praying. You're like, how in the world could I ever do that? And in the Eastern Church, this, they said, this is how you do that. There's a book written about it by a guy who wandered through uh, Russia in, I think, the 17th century. He was a pilgrim. He had uh, a physical disability. Um, he didn't work. He relied upon the aid of others. Uh, but he heard in church a sermon on this passage, to pray without ceasing. And he wondered, how could I do that? And so he wandered. It's called The Way of a Pilgrim. If you want to look it up, you can you buy that book. It's, it's really, it's amazing. Uh, really, it's a page turner, believe it or not. And he's on this journey, and throughout this journey, he learns more and more how to pray, well, the Jesus prayer. The tradition in the Eastern Church teaches, and people will testify to the fact that when they've prayed this prayer consistently over time in their life, it has indeed moved from their lips to their mind to their heart. Such that, they, such that this prayer is being prayed at the center of their being, even when their mind isn't actively doing it. This prayer has sort of been united with their person, so that continuously they're acclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, as Son of God, and asking God's mercy. Uh, folks will say that they pray that this prayer, they'll be praying this prayer even in their sleep. 
that sleep doesn't stop the prayer. They continue to pray it. I mean, this is talking about um, sort of a mystical reality, right? Um, now, the people who are claiming this uh, are the most holy people that I've really ever read anything about. Uh, the saints of the church. Um, so, the point is that I don't think they're lying. I don't think they're just making this up centuries apart. No, this is something that they are actually experiencing, praying to God without ceasing with this prayer as an aid to that endeavor. Um, their whole goal is to humble themselves, not to exalt themselves. The saints who are saying this are simultaneously the most humble people in the world. The, world, the, the ones who know how much they need to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like, that's the prayer they're praying. They're not praying the prayer of the, tax, or the Pharisee. Look how great I am. I had this amazing prayer, and I tithe, and I, I fast two times a week. and I do. That's not what they're doing. They're doing precisely the opposite. And they say they experience intimacy with God uh, in this prayer. So, so, I think there's a lot there for us. The invitation for you is perhaps to begin praying this prayer. You can do it two ways. Probably both will be helpful. The first way is to pray this prayer to set out a, a longer period of time and to pray this prayer repeatedly, moving again from the lips to the mind and hopefully to the heart. After about 20 minutes, things will begin to change a little bit. It'll, the, the prayer will take on a different aspect or um, be experienced in, in perhaps a sweeter way. The first 20 minutes require work. I mean, it's hard work. Um, Think about the, the things that you've cared about the very most in your life. Think about the things that you have worked the absolute hardest for. Whether that be in your job or career or in athletics as a kid or for a financial goal or to win the love of somebody that you're drawn to. Think about the things that you have worked absolutely the hardest for in your life. Essentially, you say, well, these are the things I care about the most. Um, and I'm saying this to myself, <laughs> mainly. But prayer is where your relationship with God grows. And I work so little at prayer in my life, you would say that's probably not one of the things you care most about. And my experience is that that's probably a statement that most people could make. It's not across the board. But most people probably find themselves with me in that. The invitation here is not for you to earn your way to Christ or to work hard enough and merit something. But the goal is to offer yourself completely, heart, soul, mind, and strength. This prayer is a way that you can begin to do that. So if you prayed it for 30 minutes, you would probably be exhausted. <laughs> would it be worth trying something a little bit harder than you usually try? I think so. The other way you can pray it is in shorter, uh, quicker ways. Um, you can pray it maybe when you're feeling a bit afraid. Right? Something comes up, you don't know what to do, it seems a bit overwhelming, you, you, you learn some news or, or something's going on in front of you and you're right in the middle of it and you don't know, you can't stop and kneel down and, well, if you're into this now, making the sign of the cross and 
and go into this long, drawn-out prayer to God about handling this situation you're in the middle of. But you can say in your mind, Lord, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And just offer all that up to God in a moment. Uh, you can pray this prayer. You know, I had a friend, Tim, who uh, did his Ph.D. in the early church fathers. He's actually the one who introduced me to this prayer. Uh, he's, he's passed away now. He, he died when he was 37. Uh, he was in a time where he had just finished his doctorate, and his family was moving to, from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia to be near his family. But he didn't have a place to live, though he had to move out of his home in Pittsburgh. He didn't have a job. His wife didn't have a job. His children didn't know where they were going to go to school or where they would live. They had so many things that were up in the air and uncertain before them. You could imagine that being a fairly stressful situation. They didn't have a lot of money either. So it wasn't like they, they had some padding here um, or time to make decisions. It was during this period of time, uh, I remember for him, he came to this realization which changed things for him in a dramatic way. He realized that he would always have the Jesus prayer. He said, regardless of whatever happens to me in the world, I will always be able to pray this prayer. And that gave him such great comfort Whatever his circumstances, he had this prayer that he could offer up to the Lord. This, this prayer that when he prayed it, opened him in a way that he felt God's presence and communed with him. So, maybe you can pray it when you're afraid. Maybe you can pray it when you're feeling tempted. Maybe, in a moment, you feel those passions arise. You get angry with someone because of what they've just done. One of the ways that the Jesus prayer has been utilized in the history of the church is when you're tempted to pray the Jesus prayer until that sensation, that feeling, that idea goes away. You're angry. Pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me until you stop being angry. You can direct all of that up to God, recognizing you need the Lord's mercy here. You can't just squash down those feelings on your own. You need Christ to do it and to be operative in this situation. You can pray it when you're afraid or when you're tempted. You can pray it for other people. So, I've, I've prayed it for Judy Marshall. Judy has pancreatic cancer, is undergoing chemotherapy. Sometimes that feels like more than I know how to voice to God. I don't even know sometimes exactly how to pray, right? So I can say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on Judy. I can give her and her circumstances and, and her healing over to God in, the, in, that, in that fashion. You know, when, when Ruth was born who was here this morning, uh, her first few days were really challenging. She wasn't getting enough oxygen. Her, her heart hadn't quite closed up in a place it needed to. And so we're praying for her. You all are praying for her because you, you had gotten that request. And so I pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on Ruth. You can fill in anyone's name right there. It's really easy. And you can offer them up to God uh, in a way that's meaningful and significant. Um, I prayed it for Spencer. She had a bad allergic reaction the last 48 hours to an antibiotic she was on for an ear infection. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty even keeled, but I got, I got pretty anxious about that. I was scared for her. Uh, I was frustrated by the situation we were, we were in, getting the appropriate medicine to her in a timely manner because it wasn't our fault and so on and so forth. Uh, and so I said, Lord, have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, and I've got mercy on Spencer. Uh, it's a way to pray for other people, too. 
Look at how Jesus answers this prayer in the, in the scriptures. First, when the tax collector cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, he goes away justified, experiencing salvation. There's scriptural precedent. You ask Jesus that, he will save you. He will set you in right relationship with himself. Another story, how does he answer this prayer? Jesus, or Lord Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He responds to this prayer with healing. He gives him eyes to see. Well, to see what? Well, the world, but also Jesus, whom this disciple follows. When you pray this prayer and get done, here's the, here's the catch. Your prayers aren't done for the day. Just like this man's relationship with Jesus wasn't done now that he'd healed him. It was just starting. When you pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me in the morning, well, then the whole day with Jesus opens up. Your eyes can be open to the light of Christ around you. The very thing we're shooting for. You want to pray that with me as we close? Let's pray the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.